Welcome to the 276th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Hagenbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have a pretty Google-intensive show for you today. We're going to be talking about the stuff they announced at their Smart Home Summit. We also have news on, oh, from the chip world, ARM's doing some spinoffs. We've got an acquisition by Synaptics, and that about covers the chips. Plus, we have a new feature with... Uh, Amazon, Madame A, and a security weakness that once again shows us that we're still alive and it's a day that ends in Y. Plus, new codec for video streaming, which could be helpful for all of us who have cameras in our home. We're also going to hear from Vary, who is our sponsor this week. And our guest is Sar Yaskovich who is a co-founder and CEO at Augury. We're going to be talking about bringing insurance to the industrial IoT world and what Augury is doing in that space. It's a really fascinating topic. I know. You're like, Ugh, insurance, Stacy, really? But it is going to change the way people think about insuring their businesses and maybe one day their homes. All right. So let's get this started. But first, a message from not a sponsor. That's right. This is a message from me, Stacy, and Kevin with the IoT Podcast. I just want to let everyone know that we're preparing for our July event. And that event is going to be on what it means when everything is connected. That's right. You no longer can build a product today without it having an internet connection, but that changes the nature of the product, how you sell it, and how you talk about it. So we're going to have speakers on July 28th from Honeywell, Intel, OpenPath, and more talking about what it means from a business perspective and what it means from a technical and building a product perspective. We are still looking for another sponsor or two. So if you are interested in sponsoring this event, reach out to Andrew at stacyoniot.com. And now let's talk about Google. Kevin, we hung out and watched Michelle Turner, who is a product manager over at Google and a wonderful person, by the way. <laughs> I, I will say that this was a 20-minute keynote that took the place of Google, well, the smart home section of Google I.O., and I found it kind of refreshing. I just sat there at home, and I was like, boom, influx of news, and then we were done. Yeah, I wish all of the uh, events such as this were like this going forward, because normally we'd have to travel, which is fine, and go hang out, and that's fine. But the event themselves, the keynote, for example, was was 20 minutes last night. And normally, you'd have an hour, hour and a half on stage and you sit there and you really only get 20 minutes worth of useful information. So, this was great. Yeah. Um, so, let's talk about what they talked about. I, After watching it, I was like, well, I felt like a lot of the things she talked about had already been talked about. Like there was a local SDK. She talked about the transition from, you know, works with Nash. She talked about chip, all of which has been announced. It felt like it was kind of an update on stuff they had talked about doing. The only big piece of new news I felt took a little bit of a page from Apple. What do you think? I would agree. I mean, there were no new devices mentioned. Um, maybe that's a second half of the year with the Pixel phone launch. Maybe we'll see some new Google Home products or Nest products. So when you say that taking a page from Apple, I would agree. Having used HomeKit 
Oh, wait, wait. I just realized we didn't tell you what it was. What? 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 Oh. (laughs) Yeah. Our bad. Okay. So Google said that they were going to tie Google Assistant, the home features of Google Assistant, into the next Android update. Correct. Android 11, which is available in beta, a developer beta, I believe. I don't think it's publicly available yet, although there's ways around that if you want it. It's kind of front and center, the home controls. So that makes it easier to access your home controls quicker. Um, There's also some refinements to the controls. They're borrowing some pages from the smart display interface, which I think is a good thing, kind of unifies the experience. So that the idea is if you have an Android phone and you're running Android 11, Pressing the power button will bring up certain key features that you want right away, you know, such as an emergency call or to power off the phone. But what's also going to appear there is your home, all the home settings from the Google Home app. And there are little tiles for different devices and so on. So it's quick and easy to just tap these. But then it goes a step further in that if you want to, and I don't know if it's like a long press or some other user interface feature, it will take you actually into that device in the Google Home app quicker. And that makes it faster for changing settings and, you know, if you need to do something different with your account linkage and so on. So it speeds up the touch process. You still have the voice controls, which are always on if you want with Android, but they are unifying this experience and making, again, a first-class citizen. I like that because I I will say that there are times when voice doesn't work. There are times when, you know, I'm... (laughs) You may not want voice. You're not in a position to use voice. Right. Yeah. So like when I always think about like when I'm watching a movie and I'm like, oh, I'm cold or did I lock the door? Or two, when my husband is asleep next to me and I'm still like reading or doing something and I'm like, oh, man, I don't want to get out of bed and turn off the lights in the living room. Those are two probably reasonable use cases. I'm sure other people have others. But yeah, so I'm, I'm excited about this. And I think also this could be good over time. Once they get this interface down, you could see it on things like maybe, I know we don't use Android Wear, but maybe with the acquisition of Fitbit, we'll see more. So having a easily accessible and maybe more compact way to get to controlling your smart home. Along the lines of these, uh, the developer changes that have to be made. And actually, developers don't have to change anything. This is just baked into Android 11. But Google is pushing for discovery of device linkage and automations. So developers who work on the software for connected products, when customers install that app, it says, oh, well, hey, would you like to link this with your doorbell or your outside lights? Uh, maybe it's a timer or something. So they're, they're really pushing to expand the usage through this, this discovery process going forward. Yes. And I, and I think that's probably essential because everybody wants, I know engagement's an advertising-based metric, but you do want people, like every smart home company tracks how many times people open the app and Mm -hmm. how many times people use the product. And that's important to them. And Google actually, I believe last week, announced some new developer analytics in a smart home console that shows more detailed stats such as engagement, including metrics saying What's the latency of your app? So maybe you need to improve it. Or how much time is your user spending with that app? So on and so forth. So this is a big push here. 
ultimately, that should make life better for us as consumers because you can see that your like latency is terrible or that people aren't spending time with your device, which means it probably isn't important to them or it might need improvements. And speaking of latency. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, well, you I was go, say your that, segue is way better. Let's go with that one. Speaking, speaking of, latency. of latency, we're actually reducing it so that your devices react faster to your commands. Google did mention the local home SDK, which is and has been generally available to developers since April. Uh, this is the first time I've seen a product list of product partners who have launched some functionality with the local home SDK. There were 11 companies. I'll just real quick run through them. Yeelight, Wiz, Ledvance, Tile, Sengled, LifeX, Nanoleaf, Philips Hue, Casa Smart, GE Lighting, and Home A Genius. Now, I haven't seen any of these companies tout this as we have local home support, which makes everything react faster and keeps more of your data in your home. But that's a good sign, I think. Yeah, and it, they could be using it and we just don't even know. I mean, most of these are lights, with the exception of Tile. Casa could be lights because they have the smart plugs um, and they, they do actually have lighting. And, and lighting is a place where obviously latency really matters. Maybe they have been doing it and we just don't know. Maybe. I'd, I'd be <laughs> telling customers about this, though, if I were them. I mean, a lot of people who are in the know and have been using smart homes for years have wanted local control. So you're going to make a lot of people happy if your product supports it and you tell them about it. Yeah. So so we'll we'll see. Maybe we'll start seeing that. And maybe we should. I mean, the GE lighting and the Philips Hue, the fact that there's like Bluetooth based lighting out there instead of Wi-Fi, that's all going through the hub and controlled locally. They can reach out to the cloud, but they don't have to. Yeah. So local home. Yay. More stuff there. I'm just going to give it, I'm going to mention this because we don't talk a lot about audio visual stuff, but obviously for some people, that's a really important part of the smart home. Google talked about Shed, and I'm forgetting right now, Smart, uh, home, smart entertainment. home Entertainment Devices. Oh, yes. So they call these the Shed Devices, and this is basically stuff you can Chromecast to. So <laughs> <laughs> they added features into Google Assistant and Google Home to make it easier to talk to those devices. And you still need a Chromecast or Chromecast ability, Chromecast software, <laughs> on whatever you want to control this way. Unless the, the device, you know, has um, some other Google Home linkage. Well, I don't know. Like, I mean, I can't tell my Harmony, which does have a Google Home link to find Show Me Queer Eye episodes, for example. But I could well, with Chromecast. I think because these new device types were supported or are supported, I think if Harmony updates their software, I think it will work. Oh, well, we'll have to put a pin in that while I check it out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Now that I have the new house, I can totally, I, Harmony is one of the things I've set up. Okay. Also, presence, but not the exciting individual presence that Kevin and I are so excited about. This is more like a bringing back presence from the Works with Nest program that a lot of people lost and were sad about, which is, you know, your Nest thermostat, for example, could say, hey, no one's home. And it could tell your hue lights to turn off, for example. But when Google transferred works with Nest to works with Google. They took the ability of the thermostat to talk to things and they put that in the hub. So then the thermostat had to tell the hub and then the hub had to tell the lights and it was... And the APIs changed. So developers had to go through the new works with Google program and very few 
uh, have at this point, or at least that I know of. So yeah. Yeah, it's been a process. So they're going to launch home and away routines where it will automatically change temperature, locks, lights, whatever that you want to set up there based on if your home thinks you're home. This is not individual people again. This is just like bodies wandering around your house that presumably are not the dog and then automating based on that. But that gets us closer to where we want to go with the smart home. So we think it's a good thing. And they clarified and put some, I don't want to say controls. They they created a developer console for this device access, which if you're a device owner, you need to do the whole works with Google thing. And you can integrate with Google Nest through the console. But it's not just for device makers. They still are allowing, to a small degree, individuals to create their own Google Nest integrations where they can go to the console, create the integration and test. But it's only going to be really for devices that Google has done security audits on and continued assessments in terms of privacy. So it's a small a small way to, to let people still have some control. Yeah, I think we called it an appeasement earlier. Yeah. It's, it's a way to appease people who were really frustrated. And there there were lots. There were lots of advanced users who were like, ah, Google, you're taking away my ability to create these amazing deep automations. You can still create them, but the devices that you're going to create them with, they have to have gone through this annual security audit, which is actually good for you. Oh, I agree. Absolutely. And even if they do, not every attribute of a device may be available to to the routine. So it's we have to wait and see the details on how this is implemented because it hasn't really rolled out yet. The console you can sign up for, you can sign up for um, information in the future on it if you're interested. And I have a link in a post on that. So you can Sign check up. that out. Sign on up. All right. And they mentioned chip. And it was brief, and it was perfunctory, and it was basically (laughs) saying that, yeah, it's going to happen. The certification for CHIP, which is the Connected Home Over IP effort, which is basically the one standard for the smart home with Apple, Google, Samsung, Amazon all participating. Basically, yeah, they're still working on it. It's still going to be out before the end of this year, and that's all we know. And by out before the end of this year, you're really talking about the the first release of a of a standard, I assume, not actual yeah. devices using it, right? Yeah, the cert. They think devices will be out in 2021. I think they're crazy, but we'll <laughs> see. We'll see. Okay, that's kind of most of the Google news. What else do we want to talk about from Google? So we mentioned the the shed stuff, which they touched upon last night in the summit briefly. There's also some news about the Google Home app eventually supporting and integrating with Nest Protect because right now it's kind of limited, I think, because the whole works with Nest bit was broken. Yeah. So you you don't have like cross device integrations, um, and that's going to change. So nine to five Google caught wind of this, and it's coming. That's all that was said is in the coming months. A timeline will be provided for Nest Protect to appear in the Google Home app and work with other devices. So this is, again, part of the whole uh, routines bit with home away and such. So it's a good thing, but it's not here yet. I, I would also say, so after the Michelle Turner keynote, they did a presentation or a, a panel conversation with some smart home partners, uh, Vizio, Ikea, Tuya, and... LG were the participants. And there wasn't a lot there, but there was one little tidbit that I thought I'd share with everyone just because I'm living it in my own life. The IKEA person talked about the usage trends they are seeing in 
smart homes. And if you're not aware, IKEA did their launch of the trod-free, trod-free lights because they wanted to make it easier for people to dim their lights. They didn't actually want to do a smart product. They were just like, people really want to dim their lights and that's hard. Let's solve that for them. What they found though, after they put them out there is adults tend to prefer warm lights and kids prefer the cooler daylight colors. And I totally see this. My daughter, we just installed some lights in her room and I was like, you know, surely she'll want like the 2700 or maybe 3000 Kelvin. Is it Kelvin? The color yeah, temperature? It is. Yeah, it is. So color temperature lights, because that's what I prefer. Why wouldn't she? But no, she went all the way up to, I think she wanted 5000, but I, we compromised at 4500. And oh my gosh, her room is like, bam, it's like a sunny field. It's crazy. So cool. So bright. Oh, I can't have it. Could be worse. She could be a 6500. No, no, <laughs> not in my house, not in my house. <laughs> so I just thought that was interesting. I wanted to share that with y'all in case everyone, you know, in case you're listening, you're like, oh, my God, me too. I prefer the the warmer colors in the mornings and the evenings. But during the day, I, I'd rather have the daylight. Okay, well, that's just me she, personally. She's just daylight all the time. And maybe that's just because she, you know, incandescence. So our childhood, right? Right. Uh, who knows? All right, let's talk about chips. Speaking of LEDs, they're a chip, sure. Arm, the chip licensing firm on Tuesday this week said that they were going to spin out their IoT platform business and their 2018 Treasure data acquisition. They're spinning it out to SoftBank, and SoftBank's going to take those, it's basically Arm's IoT services platforms and grow those as separate entities. And just to be clear, SoftBank owns ARM. Yes, SoftBank made a $32 billion purchase of ARM in 2016. It was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. ARM is still going to make, well, it's not going to make chips. It's never made chips. It's still going to design, license their designs to chip makers for microcontrollers, for application processors, and yeah, even MacBooks. <laughs> even the chips inside MacBooks. That's right. So what's happening here is that ARM's basically getting out of the IoT services business. And this makes sense. Because I said in a story that I wrote that ARM saw where the IoT was headed, and it knew what its customers needed, and it tried to deliver it. But it just wasn't in a position to do so. Because it couldn't offer a cloud service that could compete with like the likes of Amazon or Microsoft, right? And it's Pelion business, which is part of the Treasure Data acquisition, is a device management cloud for IoT and a connectivity cloud. And it has a lot of happy customers. But ultimately, I think the focus on IP licensing to chip vendors is hurting it because the chip vendors don't want to kind of compete with ARM to do these deals to link their chips to the cloud, right? They want to link to AWS and Microsoft and everybody else. They want more choice. And, you know, I'm sure they didn't feel obligated to use ARM's device management services, but it's like... No one did. That was the problem. Sorry. Yeah, that's... that's No, that's that, you're right. That is the problem. And, and to me, it was almost like ARM, which does license the... IP and architecture of chips it designs to all the companies who then customize and or fabricate them, it would be like ARM making its own chips as well and competing with its licensees. And nobody would want that either. So to me, it's a similar situation, slightly different, but similar. 
Yeah. So basically, ARM saw where the market was going and it tried to meet it. And the market was like, mm, no thanks. Not interested. Stay Sorry. in your lane. So <laughs> that's what ARM's doing. So this is not a terrible thing. It's just a, a thing. Okay. In other chip news, Synaptics has purchased Broadcom's wireless IoT connectivity business for $250 million. Synaptics is probably not a household name, but they make haptic chips. They do a lot of silicon on the user interface side. So getting your devices to communicate back to you in some sort of way. And having the IoT connectivity side just makes it easier for them to build modules for things. You know, there's a lot of reshuffling happening right now and over the last few years in the chip space as they adapt to the IoT market. So this isn't, you know, this is just a thing. All right. Let's talk about Madam A. <laughs> let's talk about Madam A. Huge news. I'm being sarcastic. Huge news. Um, the new, newest Amazon Madam A app for iOS and Android allows for using Madam A hands-free. So I first saw that. I'm like, oh, it's kind of like always listening, like, like does on Android for Google or the S on iOS, <laughs> but not quite. You still have to have the app open. So it's not always listening unless you have the app open. So to me, it's like, how is that hands free? We didn't talk about this, but we should. This is a good point, actually. So Google has a handset. And we, you see mm -hmm. their news yesterday talking about bringing Google Assistant to the handset. Apple, same thing. Amazon doesn't have a handset. It has an app. And I'm very curious how that's going to help or hurt Amazon going forward as we see that we need to talk to the smart home in several different ways. Well, we've already seen how it impacts Amazon in that just a week or two ago, I reviewed the Amazon Echo Frames. What is the main compelling reason to have them? You then have it always listening for Madam A wearable. So all of their devices are have these always listening features, but none of them can be phones, obviously, because they don't have a phone. So they're scrambling to find out what, if anything, will work on the go. Because in the home, they're fine. They've got the Echo devices. But when you're not at home or not at work, in between, how do you quickly, by voice, ask Madam A a question? Yeah. And it's hard. So we'll see how that works. I, I'm getting less, not less enamored, but just I think I'm turning more towards Google partially because I can do more things and I've got it in more places. So we'll see. It's easy to access because you have an Android phone. You can enable the always listening feature, for example. Yeah. Plus, I don't know what it is, if it's my phone or if it's the app, but man, every time I open the Madam A app on my phone, it takes forever. Everything takes forever to load. It drives me nuts. Anyway. All right. Let's, let's get some bad news on the security front. <laughs> This is interesting. I never thought about it, but it makes sense. There's been a, some research done on the data being sent to the cloud from home security cameras. And theoretically, if a potential burglar wants to know if you're home or not, and they're able to access how much data, not what kind of data, just how much data your home is sending to the cloud at any given time, they can tell with some pretty good certainty that maybe you're home and maybe you're not. Because if you're not home, nothing's moving in the house, there's no video stream. There's no data going up to the cloud. And if they can see that, they're like, hey, they're probably not home. 
Yeah, I never thought of that. Yeah, I actually thought about it the other way. <laughs> it's like, surely when you turn them on, they can see that now there's data flowing. So now they know you're not home. But it's the opposite in this case. Right. And this, this is actually a good reason to have local storage. It's a main reason when I'm looking at security cameras, I look first for, do they have local storage? I never thought of this particular reason, but it adds to my list of reasons to have local. Although if someone robs your house, they just take your camera with them and then poof. But at least I get to see them. I don't know. No, I mean, if it's local and they take the camera, they've taken your... Oh, you're, you're talking about on a hub. Okay. Well, think about it this way, though. If, if it's local, there's no data being streamed up. So Right. But if someone comes in, they just, they're like, I don't... <laughs> they come in and say, oh, you are home. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. All right. And speaking of video, we have a new codec that could make streaming in 4K less intense. So cut the data rates in half. This is, I can never say this company's name. It's the German. Fraunhofer. Fraunhofer, German licensing IP organization. And it's the H.266 codec? It is, because we started with H.264, moved to 265, and it just makes sense to have the next one be 266. And, and to be honest, the news everybody's talking about is how this is going to impact your bandwidth when watching 4K video at home, you'll use half the bandwidth, which is great because there are a lot of people still that have bandwidth caps at the, at the house. And Boo, even for bandwidth caps. <laughs> Boo, I agree. And for mobile, it helps as well. But I looked at Wait, this and I'm like, are you streaming 4K on your tiny mobile? Does that, why? Some, there are a few 4K display uh, smartphones out there, very few, but there are many 1440p and that's in between 1080p and 4K. So- yeah, that's the trend. Okay. So I'm just this saying. Is, you know, this maybe, is why maybe I keep a, you around, Kevin, because, you know. Well, I'm, <laughs> look at how many tablets there are out there with bigger screens that could take advantage of higher resolutions and have maybe LTE built in. So, But regardless, everybody's covering this from that perspective. I saw the news. And I'm like, well, that would be really helpful for web security cameras if, and only if, the device makers adopted the new codec, of course. But if they do, and I can't say any rest, reason they wouldn't, unless it's a licensing issue, you know, that's a lot less bandwidth going up to the cloud. I mean, half of my bandwidth when I had cloud-based cameras was literally video, 500 gig a month going up to the cloud. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's great. And it'll cut on cloud costs for them, which means I don't think we'll see this, but it, it could reduce subscription fees. Dun, dun, dun. Although very few web devices right now are streaming in 4K. I will say that partially because it is just too much, too much. All right. Well, that concludes the news portion of the show. I think it's time to listen to y'all. It's time for the IoT Podcast Hotline. And this hotline is brought to you by Schlage. The best home automation adds convenience, not hassle. With its built-in Wi-Fi, the Schlage Encode Smart Wi-Fi Deadbolt shows just how easy secure can be. Learn more at schlage.com. And this month, if you call us, you will be entered to win a Schlage lock. All you have to do is call us with your question or a comment at 512-623-7424. You have to call us before the end of the month. That is July 31st at midnight, and you will be entered to win. Now, this week's question is from Dean. Let's hear it. Hi, Stacey and Kevin. This is Dean from Minnesota. First, 
your advice on the hue lights that you gave me last year. I put them outside. Though we didn't have a polar vortex, it worked amazing. It is super cool. So they worked through a Minnesota winter. I have two easy questions that I just can't find the answer. I have a Waymo outlet that I run accent lights. I have hue lights, and I like them to come on at sunset and turn off at a certain period of time. However, when I was trying to show my wife this process, she was kind of frustrated because the Waymo lights turned on at sunset on the Waymo app because I couldn't get it to work with hue lights. And then the hue lights, they turn on at sunset with their app. And then I come back full circle on the backside and use IFT to turn them off in the evening. Is there a way that I can do this within my Google Assistant versus having these different ways? It works, but it's hard to explain to someone other than the actual person using it, which is me. And last question is, is if kind of on its way out as to should I just be veering from that because more and more features are going away from that and that kind of connects to my first question. Thanks, y'all. You do a great job, and uh, I look forward to hearing the answer. Oh, Dean, this is an <laughs> excellent question. I, too, commiserate with you on your – I was showing this to my spouse, and they were frustrated. <laughs> but, <laughs> Why well, isn't well, this easier? <laughs> we, have, we have good news and bad news, which do we want to give first to Dean? Yes. What's what's the good news? No, let's go to the bad news because it really does answer his question directly, but then we've got good news as well. So the bad news is that currently Google routines cannot be set or customized for sunset or sunrise. You can create a Google routine for a specific time. You can then have multiple devices react to that time. So turn on lights could be your command in the routine, and then you would choose which lights. So you would choose your... Philips Wemo Hue and, and your Wemo. Hue. Exactly. So you could, you could do it that way if you want a specific time. However, the good news is, do you want to share it? No, because I don't think it's good news. I think it's a pain in the butt, but go ahead. Well, all right. If you want to do this, you can do it, but not through Google Home. You would have to use if this, then that. So ifttt.com. I would recommend using Weather Underground, which captures sunset and sunrise times in your specific neighborhood as your trigger event. So that's this. If it's sunset where I live, you would do it then turn on Philips Hue. And use the same... Mm-hmm. Same app. So use Weather Underground for both so you get the same time. Well, I, I was know- just going to say, for bo- you say for both, you have to do this twice. You have to set up two recipes and because you can't have two devices turned on or activated or whatever you want to do through an if this then that recipe. So yes, almost identical recipes, just one with your Hue, one with your Wemo based on Weather Underground, Sunset and or Sunrise, whatever you'd like. And then you'll want to also... Somehow, unless you just don't care, you also want to do something to turn them off at a certain time. Personally, I turn mine on, but I leave it to me to turn them off because there's no set habit in our house for going to bed. I I actually use the built-in routine uh, for Google Home that's uh, good night. Go to sleep? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you can set that to turn all of your lights off, for example, or certain ones. I just, depending on when I go to bed, I'm always the last one to go to bed. I say it in my office. And then I walk to my bedroom. And by the time I get there, every light in the house is off. There you go. So Dean, you can you can turn them off 
through the hub, but you cannot turn them on yet. And I will say shame, shame, shame on you, Google. This is a basic functionality. We've had this for like a decade in some of the, the like X10 and Insteon and those kind of old school things. And we've even Mm -hmm. had it for a while. I remember being excited when Wink added it and when SmartThings added it, but that was like, I mean, we were still using Wink so, so long ago. Several, several years ago. Yeah. I mean, if you have, if you have a a true smart home hub, not a Google home, for example, or you could do it with the hub, but I'm presuming you don't have one. You just want to do it through Google and that's fine. But this also shows where Google needs to step it up in terms of its devices acting more like a hub that you have more control over your devices. And and can I just say, I wish we had the sound of a bell so we could do the whole shame, shame, shame thing from Game of Thrones. Ah, yes, yes. Shame, bang. Shame. Yeah. Now, I'm going to throw you for a loop here, Kevin. Does Apple offer this with HomeKit? I think they have a Sunrise Sunset queue. You can do this with HomeKit. Um, you just, in, in the Home app, to create the automation. You hit the plus symbol at the top right. And there's a time of day option. And Sunset and Sunrise are available options. And I will let you know that Amazon Echo also lets you do that. They have, when you create a new routine, when you click when this happens, you can schedule it. And Sunrise and Sunset are an option. So take that, Google. Google. Get your get, get it, your rear get in gear, done. as my mom used to tell me. Shame. <laughs> All right. Now that we have sufficiently shamed Google, please stay tuned for our guest, Sar Yaskovich, who is a co-founder and CEO at Augury. He is going to be talking to us about bringing machine learning and predictive maintenance from the industrial manufacturing world and tying that to insurance policies. So super awesome, super fun. But before we get to that, Here's a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Fairy. Hey, everyone. We are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Very, and I have Justin Schneck, who is a software engineering fellow at Very. Very is a fully distributed IoT engineering platform that partners with clients to build systems for smart manufacturing, smart energy and utilities, consumer electronics, and connected wellness. Justin is also the co-founder of NERVS, which is what we'll be talking about today. So, Justin, can you tell us what NERVS is and how it works in the real world? Sure. NERVS produces an open-source platform and infrastructure for companies to build, deploy, and securely manage fleets of IoT devices at speed and scale. NERVS has two pieces. The NERVS platform, which allows you to build and deploy maintainable embedded systems, and NERVS Hub, which is an extensible web service that allows you to manage over-the-air firmware updates for devices in the field. NERVS has different use cases across industries. For example, Latote, the clothing rental service, uses NERVS to build web-based kiosk systems to drive warehouse productivity. Meanwhile, FarmBot is an open-source farming project that uses NERVS to manage fleets of smart farming devices. Oh, I love FarmBot. So what got you interested in IoT development? At one time, I wondered how hard it would be to start my motorcycle from my phone. What I found was rewiring the motorcycle and writing the interface was the easy part, but connecting it all together proved to be a challenge. I wanted something to make that easier. So I teamed up with my co-founder, Frank Hunleth, and with the help of the open source community, we started building NERVS. Awesome. So how does NERVS connect to the work you're doing with Vary today? 
Well, there's this various choice for embedded development because it offers agility, security, adaptability, and scalability. NERVS also uses the Erlang runtime system, which is known for being distributed, fault-tolerant, soft real-time, and highly available. Very has used NERVS on projects like an IoT beer kiosk that our team built for Hop, and we continue to use it in most of our ongoing IoT projects. Part of my job is to add my expertise to those projects, and the other part is to continue expanding the capabilities of the NERVS platform to make embedded development easier. Excellent. So, Justin, where do I go to learn more about how Very can help me with my IoT project? You can reach out to us at verypossible.com slash Stacy. That's V-E-R-Y possible.com slash S-P-A-C-E-Y. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Sar Yaskovich, who is CEO and co-founder of Augury. Hello, Sar. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, I am super excited. We talked to you, gosh, three years ago uh, when the company was coming out with your uh, vibration sensor. So let's just get a quick update. Let's tell everybody what Augury does and how you've been for the last three years. Perfect. Well, as you can imagine, a lot has changed in the, in the world in the last three years, let alone the last three months. What we do in Augury, we're a digital machine health company. And what that means is that we work with the largest manufacturers out there. So you could imagine toilet paper and food and beverage and cleaning products in order to make the production lines more productive and reliable. You know, we started Augury eight and a half years ago, and we had a pretty good understanding of what we want to do, right, what, what we're building here. And that is we want to make the machines that matter more reliable. But we never imagined that fast forward kind of eight years, we'll see supply chain disruption on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, right? Or that when I go to the supermarket, still to this day, I can't find toilet paper or cleaning product. So the the role that machines play in driving the supply chain and then supporting our lives really was thrust into the spotlight uh, in the last two or three months. And And for me, it means that our mission has become so much more relevant today than it ever was. I agree. And as someone who also cannot find toilet paper, or at least not easily, I I appreciate the efforts that you're making here. So your sensor measures the health of machines. The sensor lives on the machine. You're running an algorithm or probably several algorithms that tracks the sound of the motor, how it's working, that sort of thing, correct? Correct. So we at Augury, we are a full stack company. Uh, That means we have our own hardware. We control the connectivity, we run the diagnostics, the algorithms, and, and then we also provide professional services and, and consultancy to our customers. Our hardware contains multiple types of, of uh, sensing technologies. We, we have vibration, as you mentioned. We also have temperature. We have a magnetic sensor that measures the magnetic emissions from a motor. So that enables us to detect both mechanical issues as well as electrical issues in the motors and, and drives. Okay, so the reason we're talking here today is that you're actually getting into the insurance game, which is to me fascinating. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. So when we started, again, going back six, seven years ago, and we thought, what is the impact? Like, what what are we doing here? Originally, we started in the maintenance realm, right? So predictive maintenance, we can detect malfunctions, we can help you avoid 
critical failures. But if you continue kind of extrapolate that thinking one or two steps ahead and, and you start asking the questions, if I can detect 90, 95% of all malfunctions and help avoid those critical breakdowns, why do I, why does the customer need to even buy insurance? What role will insurance play in, in this kind of new world? And it was clear for us that we're moving from a maintenance tool to a risk management solution. So we started, we reached out to uh, Hartford Steam Boiler, which was, uh, today it's part of Munich Re, which is the largest reinsurance company in the world. And we started having these kind of conversations, right? What is your vision for insurance? What is our vision for machine health? And how can we build, how, we, how can we combine the two and, and build kind of the, the new world order of, of insurance in the industrial markets? And we agreed on, on kind of the roadmap to get there. And a couple of weeks ago, we officially launched our, the first step together. Uh, and that is what we call guarantee diagnostics, where if Augury says that your machine is in an okay, acceptable working condition, and for whatever reason it fails, we will pay for the replacement cost, both the parts and the labor. So this model is something that we've actually seen in the consumer space. We've seen companies like some of the video doorbell companies say, hey, if you were robbed, we will refund your premium and your deductible. So so this is kind of in those lines what I think is more interesting is when we get to this idea that you don't need insurance, or rather, you are the insurance. And I'm curious, how far do you think you can take this? Yeah. So during our conversations with uh, HSB, they had one saying that I, I really fell in love with. And they said, it is our moral, moral responsibility right, as an insurance company to drive forward the, the market and the industry, right? Now, what do they mean by that? They mean that if the insurance company, through different incentives, could get people to put fire alarms or smoke alarms, rather, and they could put uh, leak detectors in order to not just have a better financial model, but to actually reduce the risk of disaster happening, right? It is their moral responsibility to do so. And very similarly in our market, if they can make the, the industrial manufacturing market more productive, more energy efficient, and all the kind of the good things that happen as even a byproduct of, of machine health, it is their responsibility and ours as well. And from a business model perspective, at, at first glance, we're not really changing anything. Uh, Augury has always been a diagnostics as a service provider which means that even though we do have hardware in the mix, we don't charge for the hardware. We only charge for the ongoing diagnostic services that, that we provide to our customers. And we're now introducing this guarantee uh, free of any charge to our, our basic level of uh, service level agreement. Now, going forward, you know, this is just the first step. The next step for us together with Munich Re and HSB is to get to uptime assurance, where we not only guarantee that your machine will not fail and we will we will pay the cost of replacement, we can also guarantee the lost uptime. So if you manufacture bottles for Coca-Cola, as an example, and, and be due to a, a specific failure, it, you lost kind of $50,000 worth of product, then we will also guarantee the, the uptime, uh, not just the cost of the equipment that, was, that has failed. And to me, that is really the holy grail for the whole industry. Now, one of the issues I have here is insurance historically is based on pooled risk from actuarial models that have just reams of data, right? And 
-hmm. When you start pulling in data from an individual machine or an individual company, and you have that level of insight and accuracy, it kind of, it feels like it destroys the pooled risk model. So it becomes, it really changes the nature of how insurance works, or am I just oversimplifying things? I I think you're spot on. I think that technology today is definitely not where it was in 1842, and that was when HSB was founded, right? So the world has changed, but the insurance model hasn't really caught up with it. And now through different measures of uh, IoT and, and, uh, and AI, artificial intelligence, you can really rethink the model. What we've been doing in the last three years, working hand-in-hand uh, hand very closely, we had our, our data science team working with the HSB, uh, also data team. Right, the statistics team and whatnot. We have over 70,000 machines that we've diagnosed. We have over 80 million hours of continuously monitored machines that we collected. And we've gathered enough data and enough results to provide the confidence for HSB to kind of back our model. Got it. That's good. But it almost feels like, why is HSB there? Like going forward, isn't this something you guys could do yourselves? There's, there's, I guess, the 10% of times where you may not predict a failure? Yeah. So the question is, what is insurance for? Uh, and I think that is a really big and, and good question to ask, right? It's worth mentioning that our joint vision, right, for, for us and, and Munich Re is, is not to end here, right? It's to get to usage-based insurance, where instead of having a, a fixed annual premium, you can adjust it on the fly based on the actual condition, on the actual risk that is embodied in, in one specific machine, right? So we're on, on that journey with them, right? Now, in, in the future, you could still ask, why do we even need insurance? The role of the insurance company will evolve over time from being a, a risk carrier to being a, a consultant for different technologies that can help you better manage that risk. Oh, that's interesting. So instead of me going to them and saying, I have the following things, they look at their charts and they're like, okay, it'll cost this much. Instead, what will my interaction be with a company like Munich Re? So let's take the smart home as an example. If you rent an apartment or own a house, today you purchase a, an insurance policy that includes fire, earthquakes, floods, and, and, and whatnot, right? So they could say, look, for earthquakes, not a lot we can do, honestly, but we can help you prevent floods or leaks rather, right? We can help you prevent or lower the risk of fire. So we recommend this vendor that provides the IoT solution for leak detection, that vendor that that helps you prevent fires, and maybe also a third vendor that helps you with energy management. Okay, that's interesting. Should I expect to see companies like yours seek to align with an insurance firm? Are they going to have a variety of your competitors? Are they going to be like a truly neutral kind of systems integrator here? And systems integrator actually implies a lot of technical expertise. So I'm curious if they'd take on that role as well. Yeah, I think uh, these are still early days and all options are on the table, right? If you look at the, again, at the home insurance market, You've seen companies like Lemonade and others that go directly to the consumer and try to compete and bypass the traditional insurance company, where other companies try to empower the insurance brokers to do a better job. I personally feel that there is risk we can control at Augury, machine health and machines breaking down and maybe uh, uptime assurance. 
there are risks we cannot control, like fire and earthquake and, and other uh, operational issues that are outside of our monitoring capabilities. We look at HSB as a partner for the long term to not only help us guarantee our diagnostics, but also maybe bring us to market as a channel partner to new customers. Okay. And how are your current customers viewing this option? So have they started, has anyone taken you up on this yet? I know you just announced it, so I don't know if it's in, in the real world yet. Yeah, so we we are we've already started rolling it out to a number of of customers, uh, select customers. Initially, uh, we are guaranteeing our diagnostics on a a subset of machines. So when you look at a production facility, uh, you have the utilities, which is mostly the pumps, fans, air compressors, or 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 whatnot that run the, the plant. And then you have the production line, which is the more complex types of, of machinery. Uh, so we're starting on the utility room and rolling out with select customers with a goal of kind of expanding the coverage to the production machines towards the end of this year. Let's, let's move on to a slightly different topic. I've been asking everyone lately, just because the timing, how has COVID-19 affected your business? What are you seeing from your customers? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, we are fortunate enough um, to be working in the segments that have actually seen a, a spike in demand, right? So toilet paper and food and cleaning products and, and whatnot, as opposed to being severely affected, severely affected like automotive and aviation, right? So we're not playing in oil and gas. We're not in those markets. So our customers are tasked with uh, how do they manufacture three or four times more product while only having 50% of their of their team on site, right? And the first thing you do, you want if you want to stretch your machines to their limit, you start foregoing scheduled maintenance or planned maintenance. But if you do it kind of blindly, you add a lot of risk. And, and the way they're using our solution is we help them identify which machines they have to tend to this week. And which machines they can keep on running for two or three months before they need to even uh, take the line down. Another really interesting effect that happened, and we did not expect, we noticed our, our users gravitating to our platform for remote collaboration. For us, for Augury as a tech company, it was fairly simple to become a remote first company or fully remote company because we use Salesforce and Slack and, and Jira and, and whatever digital collaboration tools. But if you're a maintenance manager and you wake up one day and you find out that you are non-essential, all of a sudden you can't go to your facility, what do you do? How do you manage your team? Right? So your management system is probably on-prem. You don't even have access to, to it. In your office, you used to have a big whiteboard with a schedule written on it. You can't go there anymore, so you don't know what's going on, how do you track your team? And what we did, we very quickly came out to market in March with a host of capabilities or a new flow, basically, which we call Augury Threads, which you can think of as Slack for machines. Right? So if we say that a machine is in danger for bearingware, as an example, the maintenance manager can ping the maintenance technician, which can go on site and take a picture and upload it to our platform. They can then contact procurement to order spare parts. They can talk to the the production scheduler to make sure they have the downtime scheduled uh, for next week when the parts arrive. 
and all of that in one platform that sits alongside the the insights and the and the data and that is very powerful for them we've we have customers that have started kind of opening our platform every morning in their daily stand up oh my gosh i love that you're you're like a slack for the manufacturing industry crazy yeah so it, it's kind of it's surprised we didn't expect this flow it was on our on our roadmap and but we have kind of shifted to it and and embraced it and and came up with multiple features and and improvements over the last quarter that might become actually a huge source of interest and value to uh, established companies who are in, who are in the manufacturing equipment space because this is something they're dealing with and trying to build right now. It, and I, I just want to ask you this because you mentioned like foregoing maintenance and that sort of thing. And one thing I feel like the pandemic has taught us is that we don't necessarily have a lot of slack in our economy, both in production, even in, in finance in a lot of ways. We we don't have we we have really optimized for efficiency to the point when something really bizarre or new happens, we're kind of caught very flat footed. So what I'm hearing you say in one part your pitch is you can be the most efficient. But how can we kind of look at these tools to help us also think about not just optimizing for maximum production, but also putting a little slack in there? I, I love that you use the term efficiency because we say that the world is restructuring and moving from supply chain efficiency to supply chain resiliency, right? And kind of the, the backdrop to it is in the last two decades, there have been two main kind of holy grails or, or initiatives that the, the industry has been on. The first is how do I optimize for cost? And that led to offshoring, right, uh, to China and India or, or wherever. And the second has been how do I optimize for inventory levels? Right? And the extreme end of that, you have just-in-time manufacturing where you hold zero inventory and you manufacture based on incoming orders. Now, almost ironically, the most forward-thinking companies that were the most efficient were hurt the worst in the, due to the pandemic, right? So if you had an over-reliance on manufacturing in China and China went dark in January, February, you suffered. If you had zero backup inventory and you had a surge in demand, you weren't able to keep up. And we're seeing kind of this rethinking of efficiency versus resiliency in the market. And we expect massive restructuring of the global supply chain uh, in the upcoming years. And is there a role for y'all to play, maybe not in the supply chain, but in the manufacturing aspect of that? Of course. So a part of it is bringing some manufacturing, some of the manufacturing kind of onshoring, right? bringing it back to the U.S., to Europe. And there is a challenge uh, to overcome that is the, the wage gap between Asia and, and the U.S. as an example. And in order for this to, to make financial sense, the market will need to rely on, on automation and digital technologies to enable building factories in, on U.S. soil, right? So that there is definitely room for technologies like ours to play in, in kind of in bringing back manufacturing. For us, if we help increase the productivity by 10% across all of your production lines, we leave the decision to the customer. He can either shut down one facility or just have 110% capacity. So if there is another pandemic or another crisis, they're in a better position to react to it. 
Got it. Okay. Well, Sar, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I feel like we covered two really big topics, and I appreciate it. My pleasure. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you.